As always, it is a privilege and an honor to be up here preaching in this series on Luke called Real Jesus, Real People. Uh, This morning, my message is titled Christ's Kingdom and His Subjects. Um, Those of you who are very observant might wonder why I use the word kingdom as it only appears once in the 38 verses we're going to look at today. Actually, there are three reasons for that. Number one, although kingdom only appears once, it is in the first verse of this sermon that Luke records here. In the parallel, number two, the, in the parallel account of this sermon in Matthew 5, the word appears five times in 20 verses at the beginning of it. Matthew was, of course, writing to a Jewish audience, and the idea of the kingdom would have had great rapport with them. And number three, it seems apparent in the words that Jesus uses, which Luke records here, that what we see is clearly a different realm than that in which we all live. We're not going to read the entirety of these 38 verses, but I'm going to ask that we stand together in just a moment and read verses 20 through 31 of these. So let's stand and read together aloud. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil, For the sake of the Son of Man, be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Let's pray. Gracious Father, um, these words are challenging to us. They strike at our hearts in many, many ways. And so, Father, we ask that today your Spirit will guide our hearts, our minds, that we will not only think your thoughts after you, but we will be willing to do your will in your kingdom. Bless us today as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. My thesis today is that Jesus chooses his co-workers, cures the sick, and counsels his disciples on kingdom living. 
There have been literally hundreds of volumes written about what is generally called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's Gospel has a longer version of it in chapters 5 and 6. Mark's Gospel skips it all together, as does John. Luke records about 30 verses of it here. Next to the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount is the most frequently quoted part of the Bible. So it's probably worth considering for a few moments this morning. Often, unfortunately, it is presented as a kind of standalone thing, as if it had no lead-in and nothing following it. We're going to try our best today to give it some narrative context, which is why we're starting a few verses before where we started reading. The first point in the outline is that Jesus calls his disciples and commissions them as apostles. Before we look at the men themselves, I, I want to want us to look at verse 12, where it says, it was at, that, at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, spent the entire night prior to selecting his disciples in prayer with the Father. Two observations about that. Number one, it was apparently an occasion of great moment of huge importance. These were the men who would change the world. And change it, they did. If Jesus felt the need to pray all night about such a decision, why do I make often life-changing decisions so flippantly, never even seriously considering what God would want, and certainly not spending any significant amount of time in prayer with him about them? If Jesus needed all night, how long should I take before making such decisions? The second observation is that Jesus, no doubt, knew at the very least that one of these 12 men would eventually betray him because he knew why he had come into the world. He knew how the story would end. Luke 6.13 says, And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. The word apostle, of course, is very important in the New Testament. Apostolos means one who is sent. It comes from the verb apostello, which means to send or send away. But as we read the rest of the New Testament, the word apostle and its office has even greater implications for the church itself. In Ephesians 2, Christ talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So let's look at these men for just a moment. There are in total four different lists of the disciples in the New Testament, one in Matthew 10, one in Mark chapter 3, this one in Luke 6, and one in Acts chapter 1. John's gospel does not contain one, probably because by the time he wrote, he knew there was no need for it since it was contained in all the synoptic gospels and also in the book of Acts. This table shows how the names were listed in each of the accounts. And you can read through them if you want and spend some time. I want to call your attention to this third from the last one here. In Matthew and Mark's gospel, this man is called Thaddeus. There we go. Thaddeus. In Luke's gospel and in Acts, which Luke also wrote, he is called Judas, the son of James. Now, those who like to find fault with the Bible will say, see, there's, there's a contradiction. 
Uh, I don't think it's a contradiction at all. Uh, I think that as time went on, he preferred to be called Thaddeus. Probably because he would rather not be confused with the other Judas, who was kind of problematic among the apostles. Um, Some of you know, probably many of you, that Stuart is not my first name. It's actually my middle name. My first name is Eugene. And I have both of those names from uncles of mine on my paternal and maternal sides. My, my family made a decision early on that I would be called Stuart, and for the most of my life, that's what I have been called. But there's no, as far as I know, no particular infamy attached to the name Eugene. Uh, if my first name, however, were Adolf or Judas, I might feel differently about that. And I suspect that that's why Thaddeus decided at some point, you know, I think I'll be called Thaddeus rather than Judas, just to make sure there's no confusion here. Anyway, that's just point of interest. The second thing about this outline today is that Jesus cures people of their afflictions. Uh, We are sure from Matthew 4 and 5 and from Luke chapter 5 and the beginning of of 7 that Jesus was still in Galilee at this point. We do not know precisely where he was. I have a map, a little inset of part of Galilee here. Um, We don't know precisely where he was preaching, but we know it was on a mountain near the Sea of Galilee, down here, which is also called Lake Gennesaret. It's called Lake Kinnereth or Kinnereth. The Romans preferred to call it the Sea of Tiberias because they built this little city here in honor of Tiberias, and they wanted to call it that. But we know that he was somewhere in this general area, because at the beginning of 7, it talks about his going to Capernaum immediately afterwards. But Luke mentions that among those that were in his audience on this day were people from Tyre and Sidon, which are both up here on the coast, in what it was then at that time Phoenicia, The interesting thing about that is that most of the people who lived in those areas were Gentile, not Jewish. So I thought that was a really interesting point. The other thing Luke says is that there was, quote, a great multitude who came up, a great number of throng of people who came up from Judea and Jerusalem. So they came up to hear him. They came, it says, to be healed from their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits, were being cured. At this point in Jesus' ministry, early as it was in his ministry, his popularity was great and it was growing. In, in our modern parlance, we would say that he had millions of Twitter followers and Snapchat followers. But anyway, since they didn't have that, uh, even now, even today, if somebody came along who demonstrably could heal any disease just by touching the person with it, I think people would flock to him, don't you? And of course, they did. But I don't want you to miss verse 19 of Luke 6. It says, And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. Wow. The word for people here is the word oklos, which means it has the the idea of the common people, just the ordinary folks. And the word for power, dunamis, comes from uh, from the verb dunamai, which means to be able to do something, and it carries the idea of miraculous power. 
that Jesus was obviously, it was as if power were emanating from him. And Luke makes mention of that. He being a physician, he probably was interested in that. Anyway, then the next section, which we're going to spend most of our time in this morning, Jesus characterizes his kingdom and his disciples. I want you to notice that it specifically says in verse 20, and turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, blessed are the poor, and so on. So Jesus is specifically talking in this section to his disciples. This is important because it tells us that he was talking to people who believed in him, who were followers of his. The word disciple in the New Testament, mathetes, comes from the verb manthana, which means to learn. And the idea was a disciple was somebody who was learning from the master. He apprenticed himself to the master. He followed him around and did what he did. And so Jesus was talking to people who believed in him, who were willing to say, I follow Jesus. And in that process of characterizing his kingdom, he instructs his disciples on how to live blessedly in this accursed world. It's kind of a strong word, isn't it? The word accursed. But the world is cursed, isn't it? There's something wrong in creation itself, in people, in society. And we as Christians have an answer to what that is. It's not a popular answer, but it is an answer. Because what it is is sin, isn't it? It's disobedience to God, rebellion against God. That's what's wrong. That's why this world is cursed, because of sin. Christ came, of course, to remove that curse, didn't he? The word blessed, I want to spend just a moment on. The word is makarios in Greek, and it means blessed or happy. Some translations actually translate it as happy. And that is sort of what the word means, but I have a personal problem with the word happy in English because of where it comes from in our language. It comes from the word hap, which means chance or fortune. And so it kind of carries the idea in our thinking of something that occurs just serendipitously, sort of by happenstance. And that's not what at all what, what's in view here. The word in Greek, according to Vine's Expository Dictionary, carries the sense of the nature of that which is the highest good. So when Jesus says blessed... He's saying something very specific, very particular about those in his kingdom. That word blessed, interestingly enough, also occurs twice of God in 1 Timothy. In verse 11 of chapter 1, Paul says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, this gospel, he says, with which I have been entrusted. He calls God blessed. In chapter 6, he says this, I charge you in the presence of God, he gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 
So Paul says that God himself is blessed. Blessed. I think the word ultimately comes down to the idea of being in the in the very presence of God. And of course, God is always in God's presence, so it makes sense that he's blessed, doesn't it? All right. Back to the outline. Uh, he gives, in this section, blessings upon his disciples. That's the one he's talking to, remember. Verse 20 says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Matthew's gospel, in the parallel account, he adds the words in spirit, poor in spirit. But the word itself actually contains that idea because poor, as it's used here, comes from a verb which means to crouch or to cower. So the idea is someone who is recognizes that he is lowly and beggarly and that he better cower in the presence of someone greater. In a very real sense, this is first, I think, because it speaks to how we become part of the kingdom of God. It is only when we realize how bankrupt, how beggarly, how poor, how cowering we must be in the presence of the holy God that we come to the point of trusting in his mercy and grace. That's how we get into the kingdom. Once we understand and grasp the utter helplessness, the powerlessness which we have in our own situation, we can then avail ourselves of the only remedy there is, the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our entry into the kingdom of God. And I think that's why that's first in the list here, because that's how we get in. I want to talk for a minute about that phrase, kingdom of God. I define the word as that sphere, that realm in which the will and rule of God are reality, lived out by his subjects. Now, many authors through the years have opined about this. I have a couple of others up here. George Eldon Ladd says, first of all, the kingdom is the authority to rule the sovereignty of the king. So he's emphasizing the idea that it is the kingdom of God. Graham Goldsworthy says this, it is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's pretty good, isn't it? The idea of the, the kingdom of God is that, that realm, that rule in which God holds sway. And those who are in there are willing to obey him. Obviously, God has the absolute right to rule over everything and everybody, doesn't he? Just as obviously, that's not yet a reality in a practical sense, is it? It will be someday. In the meantime, we who belong to Christ represent that realm in which God's rule holds sway. At least that's what we're supposed to be. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He talks about the poor in spirit. He also talks about the hungry. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you should be satisfied. Matthew's account of this says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus obviously cannot possibly be talking about every individual who is hungry will be someday be satisfied. Some will die in unbelief and never find any satisfaction. He's clearly talking, again, in a spiritual realm when he talks about hunger here. That's why he started out with this idea about the kingdom of God. So those who are hungry for that kingdom will, in fact, be satisfied. They will be filled. The next group he talks about is the weeping. 
Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Once again, we understand that Jesus is not promising every weeping or mourning person that he or she will someday be comforted. He is talking to his disciples. We all know unbelievers who have experienced great loss and who, refusing the grace of God, have themselves then perished entering a Christless eternity. They will never be comforted in that sense. So he's talking to those who trust him, those who believe in him. And then he talks about those who are hated. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Again, specifically Jesus is talking here about the hated the hatred, ostracism, insult, and scorn of those who suffer for the sake of the Son of Man. In Matthew's list, these disciples are at the end of the Beatitudes. There, Matthew says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in both of these accounts, Jesus promises that those who suffer in this way for the sake of the Son of Man, your reward will be great in heaven. And he also reminds them that they aren't the first people of God who have been scorned, hated, ostracized, and so on. Now, after listing these people whom he blesses, he says these are blessed, he now turns to woes, which is sort of the opposite of blessing, isn't it? Verse 24 says, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Now, just as we had to understand earlier that Jesus was speaking to those in the audience who were believers, that is, his disciples, he now turns to those among his listeners who are outside of the kingdom of God. Verse 24 starts with what's called grammatically a strong adversative. It's as if he says, but, capital letters, nonetheless, nevertheless, even so, woe to those who are rich. Now, he cannot possibly be condemning the rich simply because they're rich, although that's a very popular sentiment in our culture today. I don't think that's what he's saying. After all, Joseph of Arimathea was obviously wealthy, as probably was Nicodemus. In Paul's ministry, women like Lydia, who was a seller of purple cloth, and Phoebe from Sancria, who carried the epistle to the Romans back to them, they were well off. Philemon was a man of great wealth and influence. In the Old Testament, Abraham is said to be, quote, very rich, end quote. And I believe that because it tells us that he raised an army of men, over 300 men from his own household. Pretty good-sized household, I think. So he was rich. Wealth itself is not condemned. Wealth without trust in God is what's condemned. Because that often leads to abuse, doesn't it? To sin. That these unbelievers 
that these are unbelievers is amply demonstrated by the statement to them, you are receiving your comfort in full. You're trusting in your riches. You're trusting in what you have accumulated to give you comfort. And you're getting it, so enjoy it while it lasts. In other words, this life is all there is for them in that respect. The next group he talks about are the well-fed. Woe to you are well-fed now, for you shall be hungry. This is something that by looking at me you can not know anything about. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure all of us after this last week probably know a little bit about being well-fed. There's nothing wrong with being well-fed per se, but if we are well-fed while our brothers and sisters in Christ are starving, then there's something wrong, isn't there? This one is particularly close to home for us, especially living in America, because most of us are well-fed, aren't we? The trick is not to allow that condition to blind you or to desensitize you to those who are not well-fed. And then he talks about the laughing. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The idea here is that some are laughing not only at the expense of others, but also despite the mourning and suffering, mourning and weeping of those around them. So they have no care for those who are suffering. These are the people to whom Jesus is announcing woes. And the last group to which he says woe are those who are well regarded. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Notice the comparison between how their fathers treated the false prophets. See the same thing in verse 23 above. And apparently the ones here who are talking are well spoken of despite the spiritual treachery that they're perpetrating. In other words, if you get to the point in your life where everyone, literally everyone, speaks well of you, the chances are there are times when you're not living for God, because when you do, it offends some people. It gets some people really upset. Nobody who's a believer is always well spoken of. Remember in John 15, Jesus says, the world hated me, it'll hate you. Wow, what a promise, huh? Anyway, so these are the people to whom Jesus announces woes. And then he instructs his disciples on how to live lovingly in a broken world. I could just as well have said a hateful world. Because that's the idea of this. And then he gives us a long list. We're going to spend just a moment on each one of these just very hurriedly. He talks about loving those who are your enemies. About doing good to those who hate you blessing those who curse you, and praying for those who mistreat you. Now, I don't know about you, but those are not my automatic natural responses to being treated that way. Maybe you're different from me. Um, my automatic natural response is, oh yeah, well, I'll show you. you know. Um, but Jesus says, no, love them. I realize that we are inclined to think that if we actually do what Jesus is telling us to do here, that those who hate, curse, and or mistreat us will miraculously see the error of their ways 
and turn to Christ. They, they just might. Or they just might not. Either way, our response to them should be to love, do good, bless, and pray for them all the time. That is what Jesus is telling us to do regardless of their response or non-response to our love, blessing, and prayer. And that's not all. He goes on to say that when someone hits us on the cheek, we offer him the other one as well. When he takes our coat, that's the word for an outer garment, our robe or, or coat, cloak, then we're also to give him our inner garment, our shirt or tunic. That's an interesting thing. He even tells us to give freely to those who ask without demanding anything in return. Here's an interesting thing about all these things. You cannot do any of them unless you trust God. Not one. Because what that means is that when I treat people this way despite how they treat me, What I am saying is, God, I am trusting you to figure it all out in the end. I'm trusting you to have my back. Otherwise, I can't do it. I just can't. It requires trusting God. That's what kingdom living is about. It's about living under the sway, under the rule of God himself. And that's what he's talking about here. He then summarizes all of this with a statement, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Can you imagine how different a world it would be if everyone did this? That's how we know he's talking about a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. Everything in it is different. It has a different basis, a different ruler, a different mindset, a different ethic. And that's what he wants us to show the world. It's really hard for us because in our minds we struggle with justice and we say, well, it isn't right that somebody does that to me and doesn't get payback for it. You know what? That's right. It isn't. But I have to trust God to deal with that. And by the way, just just a little word here. Jesus is talking here about interpersonal relationships. That seems to be obvious from the text. He's not necessarily saying this is how governments should act at all. He's saying this is how we relate to each other, to other people, if we're in the kingdom of God. Anyway, he then gives us some examples as to why he is saying all of this. He says, if you love only those who love you, how does that make you different from the world? If you do good only to those who do good to you, how does that differentiate you from those in that other kingdom, the kingdom of this world? Likewise, if you lend only to those you know can and will pay you back, how does that make you stand out? What he's saying is that we need to be different from the world around us, isn't he? It's a big thing in our culture to be seen as being different. It's hard. We don't want to be different. We want to blend in, don't we? we want to, you know, I, they look at me and I'm pretty much like everybody else. No, that's not the idea. 
We're supposed to be different. I've always wondered, if you, on Friday evening, drive along Glendale, there are two different places there where you see people who are Jews going to the synagogue on Friday night for services, and Sabbath services. And you notice they're walking, and their dress is sometimes different from ours. They are different. By appearance, they're different. And they're okay with that. We need to be okay with being different from the world. Not necessarily in how we look, but in how we act. How we interact with each other and with the world around us. Furthermore, on top of showing the world what the kingdom of God is really like, verses 35 and 36 say, Your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. He says, if you treat people well who treat you badly, you're being like God, because that's what he does. Even evil people in the world get good things, don't they? Look around. (laughs) God is gracious. God is merciful. God gives them time to repent. So what he's really saying is, be like God. Also, he goes into this little section about not judging each other. Do not judge, do not condemn, instead pardon. You will reap immense rewards for living this way. Remember that this is a very important idea. John chapter 5 teaches us that Christ is the judge of all men. That ultimately all judgment is given into his hands. So, the job of judging those around me is not open. The job's been filled. Furthermore, even if it were open, I'm not qualified for it. I'd like to think I am, but I'm not. Because Christ is the only one who is. He's the only one who knows everything. He knows what's right, what's wrong, when to be merciful, when to be strict. Now you may well say, does that mean that I can't speak up when someone is wrong? When they are doing something that will harm them, maybe even society itself? Of course we have the right to speak up about those things. So long as we do it from a heart of love. See, if that, if that person is a brother or a sister in Christ, then we come alongside him or her. We encourage him or her to, to return to the path of righteousness, don't we? Galatians chapter 6. If that person is an unbeliever, we speak lovingly while trying to say the right thing, relying on the Holy Spirit of God to speak the words of truth so that that person will turn to Christ, right? So either way, my response has to be one, has to be from a heart of love. It has to be aimed at restoration, doesn't it? And that's part of what Jesus is saying here. That's a really hard thing for us. The next major point is that he instructs his disciples on how to live honestly in this evil world. We live in a, an evil, a dishonest world. A world that wouldn't know the truth but kicked them in the shins. Right? We have to be that truth lived out. 
for them to see it. And then he gives us several things in a row that we're going to just go through very quickly because we don't have much time. The first thing he says is don't be blind. Matthew 6.30 says, and he also spoke a parable to them saying, a blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? You see someone who's blind and he's got his arm holding the arm of somebody who's leading him along, right? The person leading him is not blind. (laughs) Because if he were, that would not work. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. That wouldn't work. But then he says, on the other hand, do be like your teacher. Verse 40 says, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been trained, will be like his teacher. That's a a great promise, isn't it? Reminds me of Matthew 10.25, it is enough.